And good afternoon. Charles Moskowitz here. Thanks for joining me, everyone, Monday through Friday, 12 noon to 1 p.m., live streaming on all of our subscribing platforms. Uh, thanks for joining me. And my guest this segment is Jonathan Jakubowski. He is the author of Bellwether Blues, A Conservative Awakening of the Millennial Soul. Jonathan, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Charles. Really great to be on your show. Thanks for the invite. You're welcome. Listen, this book, and you have taken on what is really a Herculean task, one that involves reaching across this divide that we're in in this country, especially among people your age, millennials, um, in terms of reaching uh, people on the other side, on, on the on the so-called liberal side. And, uh, I mean, I don't know how you did it. I mean, you, you talk about in this book three, six examples of, of people who became more conservative um, as a result of, of talking with you and others, um, Wood County, Ohio, you say six people changed their voting preferences from liberal to conservative. So really, if you can figure this one out, you'll get a Nobel Prize. How do you do it? Well, thanks, Charles. Um, well, I, I first, I, I looked at uh, empirical evidence. And the empirical evidence, there's three parts to the book. The to Bellwether Blues part one, looks at how the left has left the left. And they, they've gone so far away that... They've abandoned the ideals of freedom. The Democrats of the 1980s would have stood for the First Amendment. The Democrats of today, not even close. And there's a whole subset of millennials. It's a large generation. I investigate the generation, the largest in America, uh, but it's very nuanced. And the millennials on the coast, you know, New York, California millennials are different from Ohio millennials. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of mainland millennials who might have more in common with us conservative views, especially around freedom, than we probably think. So I go into Swing County, America, which is where the votes really count. Thankfully, we still have an electoral college and the votes of states like Ohio still matter. And in those states, when you look at the values that millennials embrace, and by the way, the millennial generation is, was born between 1981 and 1996. So they're about 23 to 38 years of age. Uh, one misconception is that all millennials are on college campuses. They're actually now moving out of college campuses and into everyday life. They're moving into the economy. They're growing families. They're starting to mature. Mm -hmm. so, so as I go yeah. ahead, Charles. No, I mean, so it's more of a, a, a middle American, not so much where I am here in Boston, uh, where people are much more difficult to reach. Uh, it's become much harder and much more hidebound, if you will. Um, you know, I guess that, um, you know, it sounds like your, your approach is very rational, but we're not always talking about rational people here. You know, I mean, it's, it's all based on this emotionally driven idea that they're willing to accept a lot of falsehoods and lies about anybody that doesn't genuflect in their direction. Yeah, nobody uh, rejects the fact that millennials have been educated in a specific direction, indoctrinated with certain ideals that come from the left for a long time. Uh, their social media sources, the, the papers they read, the information they receive, the peer pressure that they have certainly comes from left of center, but I argue it's less so in mainland America. And what I found in my county, you mentioned it earlier, Wood County, Ohio, it's a swing county, one of 59 of 3,142 that followed the voting pattern as having voted for Bush in, 04, in 2000 and 2004, Obama in 2008 and 2012, and then Trump in 16. So very unique, but an ideal location for understanding what makes voters tick, what makes them swing, what causes their patterns to shift. In my county, is, which is one of three in the state of Ohio, we have 88 counties. There were only three that followed that pattern. We are the youngest in terms of our age. We're about 40, I think, average of 40 years of age. 
So within mm-hmm. my county, there was a whole number of millennials in the 16 election that at one time voted for Obama and then changed their votes to Trump. They didn't just go from the left to the middle, as I think most millennials are feeling kind of skeptical, disillusioned, frustrated. They're, they really uh, don't trust political institutions. And that abandonment of the left from classical liberalism kind of leaves them there. But neither are they yet willing to embrace conservative values. Uh, that's why I say they have the bellwether blues. That's where the title comes mm-hmm. from. They're very sure. frustrated by it. But there were millennials in Swing County, America, that did make that shift. And that's why I look into their lives. And I have seven stories of millennials. I looked at what caused them to go all the way from left to the right. And then I analyzed that. And in part three of the book, the last part of the book, I I, uh, give a critique to modern methods of conservative persuasion because those stories inform us of the most influential ways, the most persuasive ways of, as I use in the subtitle, awakening the millennial soul. Well, let's talk about how it is that they shifted from the left to the right. I mean, just briefly, in my own story, I shifted from the left to the right in the 1980s. And there were two things that caused it. The first one was when I filed my first tax return as a self-employed businessman. Right. And I was like, holy mackerel. I mean, the, you know, the amount was double what I thought it was going to be. And I'm like, mm-hmm. this is, I was happy to pay taxes. I felt patriotic. I was in, you know, let's do this. This country's given a lot to me. And then when the, uh, by the time the accountant finished adding in all of the extra things and the social security and this, that, and the other thing, the amount was, was more than I had. I would have, you know, I was planning on investing in the company and I could not do that. Mm. And that was an awakening for me. It said, it made me question, what is it that the government is doing with all this money? You know, Mm -hmm. how is it, it's so regressive to pull this money out of a company that could expand and hire people and create and, and so, therefore, I want to know what they're doing with the money. And that led me on the road to conservatism. The other right. thing was belief in God. Uh, yeah. I guess that my question for you is what, in a nutshell, did you find were the kind of the, the pivotal points that, that, that led someone to awa- an awakening when they started to realize that they were not part of something that they thought they were part of? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I had many options. There were a lot of millennials that fit this this profile in, in my county that I could have interviewed, but I specifically identified seven millennials with different backgrounds and different stories. Their stories were were very very different in the way that they got to uh, to where they were, what led them to change their voting patterns, what was the issue or the principle that really drove them uh, to make that shift. But there was one common element that I found that was consistent throughout all seven stories. And it was the investment of a mentor who stepped into their life and helped them understand and synthesize the things that they were seeing in life as they started growing families. This is why conservative principles make a difference in helping the next generation experience freedom. Or in the case of an individual that was a socialist, he was voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary of 2016. He had a veteran that stepped into his life and helped him walk through why socialism is uh, a perverse disease and why it's dangerous for the future of America. And in six months, he changed his vote all the way over to vote for President Trump. So the one thing I saw was authentic relationship with an individual that they could trust allowed them to bring the walls down, the barriers down that you don't naturally have in a social media conversation. When I send a, a tweet or a or post to somebody, the guard's up. But when I have an authentic relationship and a dialogue with them, there's a lot more trust and they're willing to hear me out. And that that was the common thread for the seven stories in Bellwether Blues. You know, it's a very tricky business to talk with someone who is a liberal, though, and, and gain even when you do gain their trust because there are all these little triggers. I mean, I can speak to this 
even talking to certain members of my own family who, uh, you know, everything, why do you, all you care about your politics, you have an agenda. And you have to be very, very, you have to tread very carefully and oftentimes not say anything, but just sort of lead by example and uh, lead, you know, you don't have to kind of throw the whole kitchen sink out there. You kind of get into things around the edges and you sort of, you know, create a, 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 um, a general atmosphere that might lead to some revelation on their part. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I, I talk about in, in part three, the principles of developing and cultivating authentic relationship. And the first principle is you got to listen well. You got to step out, build that relationship with somebody and listen really well and ask great questions. And as you cultivate that relationship, and, and let's face it, I mean, millennials every day, we're faced with these computer screens, uh, phones, we're being inundated with information that comes from non-personal contacts. So I think this generation more than any other really craves authentic relationship. And for somebody to step into my life as a millennial and say, hey, I care about you. I want to take you out to coffee and just cultivate a relationship, invest into your life. Uh, that, that's really unusual. That's that huge. is a very unique ask. And if they listen to me and hear me talk about my dreams and my goals and ambitions, I'm going to be very interested in hearing what they have to say about their life and their principles and what they believe in and what made them successful. Now, I think that the biggest calling card of the left is the fact that they control the cultural high ground. You know, they control the, uh, you know, the entertainment world and they control and they're fashionable and they everybody wants to be part of the beautiful people. It's easy. You know, you, you and is it, there's a subtle side to that, a darker side, which pressures you to do it, because if you don't do it, you can see that people are going to be punished. You know, they'll mm -hmm. hold up a conservative. I mean, even recently, this uh, this this uh, football college coach was outed as a Trump supporter and his response was kiss my ass, you know, sort of like, yeah, that's right. I'm a Trump supporter. To me, that that moment might be the beginning of the of the straw that breaks the camel's back. And he stood up and said, you're right. I am. But but the punishment and the penalty mm -hmm. of being a, a conservative, not to mention a Trump supporter, is mm -hmm. very, very severe. So most people keep their heads low. They don't want to have that kind of trouble. And for good reason. You know, you want to have a career. You want to get ahead professionally. You don't want to, you know, bring attention to yourself. I mean, in business, a good business generally tries to avoid negative attention. So, you know, there's a lot of incentive to sort of stay on the left and not think about it too much. But do it because you're immediately accepted. You immediately get rewards and accolades and friendship and dates and everything else. And by rejecting it, you're immediately punished. This is their main calling card. How can we overcome that? Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. And I, I'm not going to deny that. And, and in fact, you know, the, the book is not saying or making, I don't make the argument in Bell with the Blues that uh, we need to abandon speaking on public platforms. Not mm -hmm. in the slightest. That We need more voices that are declaring the truth and helping to communicate why conservative principles are persuasive and compassionate and why they make a great difference in future generations. What I'm arguing for the points that you just made is a lot of these individuals um, really don't have a passionate interest in mainland America and swing County America, going out and marching and pulling down statues and uh, being engaged in the radical left. That, that doesn't interest them. And I, I think there's a, even a level of fear when they see defunding of the police, for example, with the examples right. across our country that are now very commonplace. But you have to have somebody that can help uh, thread the needle can help explain why that ideology comes from a specific worldview and a specific political ideology that is seeking power. And if we can help them tie those, uh, tie those principles together and explain why a limited vision of government 
one that does what it's supposed to do in, in creating uh, defense. You know, common defense is one of the words in the preamble to the Constitution. But all of the principles of government remain limited so that we can, as individual citizens, have enough freedom to flourish. And the word freedom, I think, is a major value that millennials share with conservatives. Oh, absolutely. That's a common denominator. And uh, Jonathan, they're going to use emotional tactics to galvanize people. And of course, the big one right now is systemic racism. And I think that there's, you know, rather than leave the field open to those who make that charge and whose answer to such things as racism is to rip the black face off the pancake box, you know, you can then say, mm -hmm. look, conservatives, we actually believe the best way to address things like racism is creating a, a business atmosphere in the minority community where people can make mm -hmm. some money by uh, deregulate, you know, by, by creating the right regulations and lowering taxes and maybe addressing crime problems so people could get to work without worrying about getting caught across a drug gang crossfire, you know, improving the yeah. schools. I mean, President Trump mentioned it in Tulsa, you know, uh, you know, cho school choice for these rotten big city schools. If someone can get out of those schools and get into a charter school or a private school with and someone gets a tax credit for sponsoring them, then, then that, that goes a long way toward ameliorating race division and race conflict. You know, a lot of things like that. In other words, I think conservatives can address this positively and maybe subtly point the finger the other way and say who is really responsible for promoting racist policies, policies that hurt black people, that hurt minorities in this country. So uh, I don't know. That's that's my approach. Let's say yeah, you. you know, I agree with you. And Charles, I found myself a couple of weeks ago in Minneapolis, Minnesota at Ground Zero with a group of leaders who wanted to understand fa a fact-finding trip, wanted to understand what was it that led to the, the George Floyd killing and uh, the subsequent events. And uh, what I really learned from that experience um, is I need to be a counter-narrative with my life. I, I need to step into this situation and explain why um, what the left is saying, there's a political agenda tied to it. Either you're an ally or an enemy. And only being an ally means I have to use their vocabulary. I have to believe their ideology. I have to tear down statues. I have to be woke in the streets. Like That's the only option that they give to uh, anybody else that's out here in mainland America asking the question, what can I do to make an impact? And th that is a false choice. Um, there is a third option. And that third option is making friends. It's going out of our way, similar to the, the principles I talk about with cultivating relationship, authentic relationship, uh, going into these places and, and working with individuals who are, who are leaders. And I saw the black church, for example, is one great medium for helping to develop uh, relational opportunities, transform generations. And by the way, I recognize that the forms of government that have led to the, the generational destruction of a race. And there's one chapter in my book where we talk about this, what welfare has done to create generational poverty. That comes from the left. Like our vision of government, of limited government, coupled with the institutions that are further upstream, which really matter, uh, faith, family, and freedom, churches, families, nonprofit institutions engaged in helping to cultivate a, a better life, a better foundation for individuals with a government that's going to defend the right of individuals, that's going to lead to long-term flourishing for the citizens in our nation that are, are in most abject poverty. No, I, I absolutely. And I think that... Uh... You, you make an appeal directly to someone who is graduating from college and looking for a job and looking for an opportunity and, you know, is really like, in a sense, ultimately, it's an appeal to self-interest because that's, in a sense, in the broad sense, an appeal to a national interest. 
All right, Jonathan, you are you are um, leading a, a, an innovative startup called Smart Solve. What what's it about? Well, it's an organization that's committed to sustainable packaging. Uh, I I find very few conservatives in this space, but once again, this is just you know a counter narrative to what uh, most people when they talk about sustainability, they think it needs to be government intervention with heavy-handed regulation. Yeah, I don't believe that. I think the private sector is the best way to create innovation, uh, to to develop new technology that will be able to allow us to to take care of the earth. And to ad advance a, a lot of the the concepts that I mean, the reason why packaging was created to be so unsustainable, if you would, was to en enhance shelf life, to allow us to have uh, more food for more people for a longer period of time, to reduce things like starvation. So we have to find a way to make sure that we're bringing technologies to the marketplace that allow those shelf lives, to, that shelf life to remain while making the technology more biodegradable. So that's what our company is really focused on: is is biodegradable, bio-based packaging. Oh, that's amazing because, you know, usually conservatives are given this false rap of not being green, which, uh, you know, I tend to be more green. I mean, I, you know, I want to see, um, you know, less air pollution, less water pollution, putting aside global warming. That's a separate question. We can all agree that we want less air pollution and, uh, you know, certainly better, better quality of, of that which we consume. So, um, you know, in a way, uh, emphasizing that is, is very positive and also contrasting that with a left who believes in, you know, the Gaia principle and, and pristine nature and, you know, without man and, and this kind of like a super overregulation. There's mm -hmm. a balance. You know, we want to have a advancement in our industrial civilization and at the same time balance, uh, you know, uh, a clean environment. I mean, it's, it's, we're not perfectionists. You know, the yeah. left wants to be purist and they have to have this perfectibility because that's what they that's the core of their belief anyway, the perfectibility of man, which is not possible. So Yeah, I know. Yep. The utopia uh, concept. Exactly. Now you're also the head of the uh, or you're involved with the um the, the the Wood County Republican Party, and I assume in that capacity you are supporting the reelection of President Trump. What do you think is going on with that? How does I mean, it's when I look at the polls right now, I feel really my heart sinks. You know, I don't know if I believe them. I actually don't believe them. But, you know, you just have to wonder, uh, you know, the, the day after day, this barrage of negative stories. Every time you turn on the news, you know, they, they the, the Tulsa speech was this incredible speech. Anyone who watched it on uh, on Fox knows that. And yet the only thing that's covered is that he didn't get the right enough the big enough crowd which of course never mind they were criticizing him before the speech for calling for too big a crowd and it's all this incredibly negative negative view they never will say something positive so i guess my question to you is how do you think that this can be overcome do you think president trump can can kind of break through this this wall of negativity and reach people yeah, the first thing I'd say is, you know, the 2016 election there, I think they gave uh, President Trump in November like a 20 percent probability of winning. Uh, I think the example given by The New York Times was it's it, it is uh, will be harder for him for harder for Hillary to lose than for an NFL kicker to miss like a 37 yard mm -hmm. field goal. Uh, I think that was the analogy percentage wise. <laughs> Uh, oh, so yeah. I, reminding everybody that the polling then obviously uh, made some they basically crowned uh, her queen before the election day. They were already practicing the ceremony for, for her victory, right? Um, so, so I don't necessarily trust polling entirely. I don't think we can. I mean, we've seen so many flawed polls 
Um, and there's a reason why I think some of the polling numbers um, aren't going to make sense and resonate in swing states throughout the country because there's a lot of people who don't answer those polls honestly. Uh, I That's talk right. about Jeremy Harpel in my in my um, one of the chapters in Bellwether Blues, and in his story, he specifically outlines within kind of the blue collar segment. They really pride themselves on making sure that pollsters think they're going to vote one way and they vote another way. Uh, so there's definitely anecdotal evidence there and certainly empirical evidence from what happened in the 16 election as to why I don't think we should trust polls. Having said that, Charles, I, I agree with you. Like This is not going to be a uh, runaway race. It's going to be a close and a very tight race. And most of the stories of people that I talked to, they're not and the people that voted for him in 16. They weren't really big fans of President Trump. His personality, his history, there were a lot of concerns related to character. And this is where I think the message of Bellwether Blues matters so much. What awakened these voters to vote for him in spite of their concerns of his character or his persona or his communication was they saw they stood for principles that they believed for generations to come were going to make a positive impact on their children and on their communities. And they decided to choose principle over personality. And that's really when the Republican Party has been at its best. We go back to 1854 of the founding of the Republican Party, which was built on the idea of abolishing slavery. When the party has been focused on principles, that is when it has flourished the most and made the greatest impacts in our nation. Well, I, all I can say is here, here. I hope that uh, the party does step up. I'd like to see them do a little bit more nationally. Something that came to my attention recently of this is that there are a lot more um, black candidates for the uh, Congress this year that are Republican than Democrat. And I hope that the Republican Party can support them with a lot more effort than they're doing. I mean, that's my main criticism of that. Jonathan Jabakowski, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. Um, you know, let's stay in touch. I hope that you, um, you know, continue with your, your efforts of organizing. And, uh, you know, to my way of thinking, you and linking up with other people across the country is what's going to pull this thing through. So um, Bellwether Blues is the book. Bellwether Blues, A Conservative Awakening of the Millennial Soul, available at Amazon.com. There you go. Excellent. Jonathan, thanks again for joining me this afternoon. Charles, thanks so much. I really appreciated the invite and really glad to be on. Thank you. Have a good one. You too.